Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and this is our first episode back as we relaunched the podcast this year, and I'm joined by the founder of Bellingcat, Elliot Higgins. Bellingcat is an investigative journalism website that specializes in fact-checking and open-source intelligence, and Elliot himself began blogging about the Syrian civil war over 10 years ago. His work individually and as part of Bellingcat has ultimately created an incredible citizen-led community of journalists and fact-checkers. If nothing else, Elliot is intent on restoring our collective concern for the truth. And it's hard to think of something more important than that, especially as we all now increasingly live our lives in a world of such fast-moving information. Elliot, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. So for the uninitiated, you've been working to address disinformation. You've been working to engage in citizen journalism for quite some time, and you founded Bellingcat in 2014. What is Bellingcat? Um, so Bellingcat is a really a collaborative, collaborative organization of investigators who work on a variety of topics. It was something that started in 2014, really as a blog. It was really just me and a few volunteers. But over the last 10 years, we've grown from a volunteer-led organization to an organization that now has 40 staff members. We, are, we operate across the world. We do um, training, workshops, investigations, education, and we work on a whole variety of topics. But we're probably best known for our work on the downing of Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 in Ukraine in 2014 where we were able to identify who was responsible. Um, more recently, the poisoning of uh, Sergei Skripal in the UK and uh, Alexei Navalny in Russia. And we specialize in using uh, online open source investigations. So that's using publicly available digital information that anyone can access. And that allows us to be very transparent about the evidence we're using and how we come to our findings. And that's really core to the work that we do. There are many government agencies public agencies, intelligence agencies that do this work ostensibly. And yet here you are, nonprofit, you really started on your own, as you say, as a blog, and then grew into a larger organization. Are you working separate from in collaboration with, you know, in parallel, a parallel track with some of these agencies? Uh, no, we're, we're completely independent. So it really grew out from my own personal interests in the conflict in Libya in 2011. And I started blogging, looking at videos and other information coming from the conflict and trying to figure out what was true and what wasn't, verifying stuff and developing techniques to verify things. Um, what was really key to the work that we do is collaboration is really important. And that's collaboration with news organizations, NGOs, but also ordinary members of the public. So really, whilst Bellingcat kind of is the central kind of node in this network, we work with many different types of people on a whole range of different topics. And you started this just on a personal note. I mean, you were not a weapon specialist, but you started this viewing videos and I would assume a massive volume of videos in the conflict in Syria and a civil war in Syria and really identifying weapons through videos that just individuals were posting to YouTube mostly. 
That's right. So with Syria, you had a very particular use of social media by people in opposition-held areas that could be, include kind of opposition media centers, armed groups, um, and very rarely individuals because there was such limited internet access. But that meant you had about a thousand YouTube channels that were being used to share information from those areas. And I started following those every day. And because I didn't speak Arabic, I was focusing on you know what they showed rather than what people were saying in the videos. And often that was the remains of arms and munitions being used. And over the years, I taught myself from various resources, both online and offline, how to identify these weapons. And I learned a lot about conventional arms, but also chemical weapons that were used in the conflict. And that combined with wider open source investigation techniques um, allowed me really to get scoops that other media hadn't picked up. So one of my biggest ones in the start of 2013 was by examining videos that were being posted online by opposition groups. I could identify weapons that traditionally didn't appear in the region. They were kind of, you always have a kind of set of arms and munitions that appear in the region because local militaries use them or they've been supplied to uh, in previous conflicts. But these weapons were brand new. And by working on that and working with uh, a team at the New York Times, we were able to identify that it was part of a smuggling operation to the Syrian opposition that was the first actual confirmation that arms and weapons were being smuggled to opposition groups. And how do you manage, I mean, whether it's in the Syria civil conflict, I mean, it's probably easier now that you've got 40 staff members and there's a, a whole network of volunteers across the world that, that are assisting and, and, and helping with the fact checking. But there is such a volume of material, including much of it fake and, and much of it, you you know, it's an attempt to weaponize digital media and social media to pursue and, and, and advance propaganda. How do you just call, you know, there's, there's a line, call the uncountable videos that circulate. You know, in Syria, you, you mentioned in, in one of your interviews, 450 YouTube channels. And you'd said you have to be first and you have to be right. How do you manage to be first and right, just given the scale of the volume that you've got to deal with? Well, it's really evolved over the last 10 years. When I first started Balinka and in the two years previous when I'd been blogging, um, there, there really was no one else doing this kind of work. And over the years, we've kind of led by example on the Bellingcat website, we've published guides, case studies, and tools for other people to learn how to do this kind of investigation. We've trained thousands of journalists and investigators and people working for NGOs. Um, and it's really about not about what the individual does by themselves, but what you do as part of a community. And I think this kind of really all paid off in 2022 with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, where there were attempts by Russia and the Russian-backed separatists in the east of Ukraine to do various types of disinformation and propaganda. But what happened is over the previous 10 years or eight years since 2014, when we had kind of worked on MH17, continued to work on the conflicts in Ukraine and various things Russia was doing in Ukraine is build everyone's kind of knowledge in the network of how to debunk stuff. So there was this kind of almost crowdsourced, ad hoc, rapid effort to debunk disinformation as was happening. And that's kind of really core to how you need to debunk disinformation. It's not a top-down approach or about an individual. It's about communities. It's about groups of people almost acting like white blood cells and the kind of body of information against disinformation that's inserted into it. And that's really crucial, I think, to any approach to countering disinformation in the long term. 
it was interesting. I, I saw you post the other day. Bellingcat has obviously achieved enough notoriety in calling attention to and creating accountability around Russian propaganda in particular that you now see Bellingcat weaponized through fake BBC videos that are referencing fake Bellingcat reports. That's right. And it's something that um, it doesn't seem very effective. It only seems to really appeal to the people who would always, always believe that kind of thing. Um, but I think it is a reflection of the kind of, in a sense, the high regard that the people producing these videos hold Bellingcat, that we're the ones, along with the BBC, they go to when they want to fake a video about something they're trying to convince the uh, public about. And how do you manage, there's obviously value in fact-checking and you know, despite the fact that there are certain videos, propaganda videos, they're trying to weaponize the fact checkers in, in an underhanded way. One of the main challenges, apart from just addressing the volume and cutting through the volume, and, and you've got a whole network and community that you've articulated to address that. How do you address the fact that, and this is the old line, you know, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. And how do you address the fact that then you, when you go to correct false information that has widely circulated, that correction oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes just reaches a smaller audience. I think in this modern era where, you know, we're so connected to information and we're connected to it in a different kind of way. We're, we're, you know, 15 years ago, really, it was more of a top-down model where information came from the government, the media, PR companies, and it kind of trickled down to us. It was published in newspapers. So there was a lot of control about the information. Now it's far more peer-to-peer -peer where you're on social media platforms, you're reacting to information that you're seeing by posting, retweeting, and sharing information. And this idea that we can have a top-down approach to countering this with, for example, fact-checking websites really doesn't work because you have, a, have to have this community-led response. Because Again, in the case of Ukraine in 2022, what was very, very effective at stopping disinformation spreading was rapid community debunking of this information. Because even the most strident believer in that kind of disinformation, it's important to remember these people aren't, you know, the, the people in the communities who spread disinformation and misinformation don't think they're spreading disinformation, misinformation. They think they're spreading the truth. So if they see something that's already been debunked into little bits, that it's been torn apart, that every piece of it has been shown to be false, they aren't going to repeat that. But if it yeah. enters their communities and it spreads around those communities, what instead will happen is when they see people debunking it, they'll just dismiss it. They say, well, you can't trust that fact-checking website because they're part of the big media and political conspiracy against our position. And it's essential, I think, when you're dealing with disinformation, not to misunderstand this as something that is always about what outside actors do to us. You know, since 2016 and the election of Donald Trump, there's been very much this idea that, oh, it was Russia who helped Donald Trump win the election. It wasn't Russia, it was Fox News. And until we start actually realizing that this is about communities who are engaging with topics and being drawn into spreading disinformation because they actually think they're seeking the truth. And it's because of their own biases that they are, they see, you know, the government, the media as being biased or, you know, the enemy in many cases, that they reject those messages and they move to more conspiratorial ideas that they think are the truth because of the lens they see the world through. And until we address that issue, then we can't really seriously deal with disinformation because in the end, all we deal with are the symptoms and generally we deal with them quite poorly. And one of the answers is maintaining trust in not only 
existing media, but trust in any upstart citizen-led journalism and, and media. And the democratization of journalism is an incredible thing. And, and when you look, you mentioned Fox News, obviously there's a questionable journalistic integrity at times. Having said that, do you worry, as with all tools and as with all changes in our society, there, there come benefits and there come challenges. And with the democratization of journalism, we obviously see an incredible thing stood up in, in Bellingcat, but there are obviously real risks if people hold themselves out as journalists, hold themselves out as doing similar comparable work, but they don't maintain the same journalistic responsibility and ethics. I think a lot, lot of it fundamentally comes down to how people look at the issues in the world around them. One pattern I've seen repeated time and time again is you have communities come together online around certain topics, and that can be chemical weapons in Syria, the shooting down of MH17, COVID, and they aren't motivated to become part of those communities because they want to spread disinformation and they want to believe lies. They believe that they are fighting against mainstream media government, et cetera, et cetera, biases, purposeful attempts to deceive. And often that's rooted in um, incidents or ongoing situations that have built a level of distrust in them, that they automatically distrust those kind of traditional gatekeepers of information. And some yeah. of that can be very legitimate. So if we look at the invasion of Iraq in 2003, um, certainly in the UK and US, we've seen a lot of distrust in the media and government is fueled by the lies that were told around that. And that is a legitimate concern. These are not people who are wrong about those beliefs. But what happens is they start seeing the world through that lens. So yeah. when they think about Syria, they think, oh, it's just Iraq all over the game. So when they have, you know, organizations like the White Helmets, for example, documentary, documenting war crimes and chemicals at attacks, they can dismiss that because they just say, oh, they're part of the attempts by the Western governments to invade Syria, just like they tried to do in Iraq. So their entire model that they see the world through is deeply, deeply biased against those sources of information. In the case of Bellingcat, we're, you know, we, we aren't government, we aren't traditional media, and we use fake, transparent information. But they can look at us and say, well, they're just part of the big media conspiracy, the big government conspiracy. They work for the CIA or MI5 or MI6. And the thing is, they surround themselves in these communities with people who reinforce those ideas. And these people call themselves journalists and they video bloggers or whatever they may be. And they might call themselves geopolitical analysts, even though they have no experience in that area. But because they say the things that these people want to hear and they reinforce those ideas and they're part of that community, it gives that those people an entire media ecosystem that reinforces their beliefs. And that happens on so many different topics. It can happen on large topics like, you know, COVID or, you know, the conflict in Syria, or even on very small issues that affect local communities. And in my hometown of Leicester in the UK, we've seen those issues where the um, Muslim and Hindu communities, um, social media basically fueled violence between the two communities because people were sharing false information, which they yeah. believed was true, about violence between the communities, which itself fueled real violence. So when we're thinking about these issues, we can't just think of it in terms of the big issues. We've got to think about it, about you know how we communicate with each other in this modern era and how the internet and social media is the medium through which we communicate. And if we keep treating it like you know, we're going to return to this top-down structure of the government and media being the gatekeepers of information and we'll go back to trusting them, then I think we're going to just set ourselves up to fail. You've 
written an article not so long ago in December addressing some of these issues, identifying the challenges of disinformation and the dangers of leaving disinformation unaddressed. And I think you you rightly articulate the, the question, which is, if digital platforms continue to prioritize commercial imperatives over authentic information dissemination, what becomes of our global discourse? Now, there are a couple of different potential answers, and there's no single answer that's going to solve these challenges. One answer is a government-led answer. You you cast some doubt, I think, fairly on why a government-led answer is the solution. Why do you think that would be a misplaced area to to rely upon well fundamentally for a lot of the communities that create and spread disinformation and again that is not something they think they're doing they think they're finding the truth they distrust the government so when they see the government coming along and deciding what is reasonable speech then they just think well this just proves we're right that we're being oppressed by the government and i think ultimately it will fuel those communities and kind of make them even more extreme in their beliefs it also gives a permission structure for less democratic societies to crack down on legitimate dissidents. So we have to be very careful about how we approach that through legislation. Now, I think there could be a role there around ideas about you know, the responsibility of social media companies to make sure information being shared on that platform does not fuel conspiracies. But you, it's a very fine balance. It's kind of like the idea around AI. How do we deal with our AI? Um, I agree. There's a big issue around AI-generated content being shared in the context of all kinds of different news events. I mean, we've seen this in particular with um, the situation with Israel and Gaza, where AI-generated imagery that's very emotionally engaging but fake is being shared and going viral. Now, in terms of the work we do, for example, on investigating human rights violations and war crimes, that doesn't have very much impact because we have a process of verification and fact-checking that will weed that stuff out. But in terms of people looking at social media, they look at an image and within two seconds, they've decided or not whether they'll retweet it or share it in some way. And that's where the problem comes. And all the fact-checking in the world is not going to stop that because it takes a while to fact-check stuff. And by the time it has been fact-checked, it could have been retweeted you know, 50,000 times. So what we really need is, I think, from a legislation perspective, is saying to social media companies, you have to develop ways to detect this kind of content before it's shared. How do you detect AI-generated content? And there are some moves towards doing that within the tech community. But I think we have to put a lot more responsibility on the social media companies to make sure that AI-generated content, content is detected as it's being shared and is either prevented from being shared or flagged as being likely AI-generated content. Um, so, and one thing that I think is a real risk with AI-generated content, it's not that we will be tricked into believing things that aren't true but it creates a permission structure for people to believe not believe things that are true. So if someone shares an image of something that politically you don't like, you say, well, that's AI generated. I don't believe it. And you're definitely already seeing that with the conflicts in Israel and Gaza. So you'll definitely see that happening again in the future. That's interesting because it takes uh, your previous concern a step further. It's, it's no longer I'm discounting this organization because I've, you know, they're connected to the mainstream media, or they're connected to the government, or they're connected to uh, a narrative that I disbelieve. Now it's, I just disbelieve anything posted because it could be AI generated. Yeah, we end up in a kind of choose your own reality situation, which is 
you can see happening to a certain extent around certain topics. Um, you look at the exit polls from the Iowa um, primaries, and you'll see that you know <laughs> yeah. two thirds of Americans believe Joe Biden didn't win the election, or two thirds of Republican voters, I should say, in Iowa. I know I liked uh, on that. It reminded me uh, you had shared your initial moniker, Brown Moses, was from a Frank Zappa song, That's and right. the uh, the quote that you shared more recently. You said this Zappa quote seems a better fit for this moment in history. There is more stupidity than hydrogen in the universe, and it has a longer shelf life. And when I saw the results from that you just referenced from Iowa, I I thought of that quote that you shared. And things that is because there has been decades of effort by the Republican Party, I think in particular, and their supporters. And um, you know, Fox News has focused more on profit than you know really being kind of unbiased. They're more about getting viewers than getting to the truth. And that means that in this kind of socially mediated era where you have so many alternative voices on the right, they are getting amplified by Fox News because they're getting lots of followers on social media. And you get lots of followers on social media, not by telling the truth, but sharing the most emotionally engaging content. So it creates this almost kind of mass kind of hallucination, you know, this new reality that people can choose to be part of if you know they don't want to believe in the other side it reinforces their ideas and that's just one example of this but it's repeated on so many different levels and so many different topics and i think until we find a solution that isn't just about this kind of top-down fact-checking approach we'll we'll just see this get worse and worse and worse and it will affect more and more countries and fundamentally it undermines our entire democratic system well i want to finish with the uh, government solution before we get to a more grassroots solution because I, I think you're right. A focusing on specific content, a whack-a-mole approach. There are. It's not to say we don't already have laws around hate speech. We have laws around defamation. We have laws around false advertising. So we do balance other interests as against free speech considerations on a regular basis. Having said that, just harmful content or misinformation or lies. It's it's a lot harder to police. A whole range of what might be described under the basket of harmful content. And it's much easier, I think, to go to a systemic approach around responsibility for social media companies. And you've identified, you know, when referencing to Fox News, that prioritizing clicks and, and chasing a commercial interest over a journalistic integrity interest. Well, we saw the same thing. I was part of a international grant committee with uh, some folks in the UK, Ian Lucas at the time when he was in Parliament, Damien Collins, and a number of other parliaments. And we had Facebook in front of us in London, and they basically said as much as well, that maybe we should be a bit more careful content that runs right up against the line. Maybe we shouldn't be allowing that kind of content in pursuit of eyeballs when we maybe should have more of a responsibility to the public interest. Uh, not that they ultimately did anything, I think, to pursue that line of thinking, but a role for government would be, I think, to say, what are the risks on your platforms? How are you mitigating those risks associated with the algorithm algorithms principally that you deploy? But you know, in the case of kids, it could be about the design of the platform as well. And some accountability through independent audits to assess those risks and to assess the mitigation efforts. I think rather than playing whack-a-mole with individual kinds of content, that kind of systemic approach would pay off in a more serious way. 
And I think there needs to be a lot more done to actually study how these algorithms start recommending you more and more extreme content. It's, it's yes. something I've observed a lot where I kind of use the example of um, COVID vaccines, where plenty of people had concerns about COVID vaccines. So you go to Google, you're typing, are COVID vaccines safe? So straight away, you're being introduced to communities who don't think they're safe. But that doesn't necessarily mean the first thing you're going to be seeing or clicking on is claims that Bill Gates is putting microchips in vaccines. It could be a debate around the additives in vaccines. And there's a big debate in the US where it's like, is it dangerous to have all these vaccines at the same time because of the additives? And so you click on that, you think mm, that maybe that's reasonable. And then it recommends you more content. But within that content, you have slightly more extreme viewpoints that say, actually, vaccines make you sick in one way or another. And then the next more extreme viewpoints are vaccines actually um, are designed to make you sick because big pharma want to profit off your illnesses. And then you get eventually to the Bill Gates is putting microchips in, microchips in your vaccine. But at any point along that route, you can jump off. But you will be surrounded by that information because the algorithm is recommending it to you. And you might say, that's ridiculous. I don't believe in this. You might say that. But if one in 10,000 people think, OK, that seems reasonable, and then another you know, one in 100 of those people say that seems reasonable, you still end up with pretty big communities who believe the most extreme version of what they can believe. And effectively, what you're having is kind of an algorithmic radicalization of people's beliefs. And that's also something I think we need to be really aware of, of how algorithms are recommending content and drawing us towards that. But that's really just part of the picture. A big part of this is how that kind of involvement with communities and what that means to people um, in many different ways, from the sense of you know being part of the community, the empowerment they feel by being part of that community is also very important. And if we don't address kind of every aspect of why people get drawn into these communities, then we're going to fail. If we just think of this as an issue of verification and fact-checking, then we are going to fail because it's about a lot more than that. Yeah, and it's interesting you referenced the search engine component because there was a recent article in Nature addressing that this concept of doing your own research. And they found, I think it was across five experiments, that there was evidence that online search to evaluate truthfulness actually increased the probability of believing in false news articles. And probably because they people went down the rabbit hole. They started with a good faith effort to find out if something was true and then went down a problematic rabbit hole and ended up believing the wrong thing. Exactly. And I, I think the approach we need is something that isn't just about showing people what disinformation is or doing fact checks, but it's something that's kind of a much wider social and cultural issue. And we need to address it like it is a wider social and cultural issue. And when there is an issue like that, and uh, this gets to the second solution you didn't you weren't entirely dismissive you, you did address concerns around a government-led solution but the bulk of the solution that you were pointing at is around education around digital and media literacy around really emphasizing critical thinking as an underpinning to curriculum and fostering that culture of inquiry yes and i, I think one thing that's very important is we need to kind of recognize that young people are using social media at an early age. There was a survey in the UK that said something like half of UK 10-year-olds have a smartphone. And that's a, you know, that's a lot of people. And 
that means they're engaging with information from an early age. I'm like, my daughter's 12 and she doesn't have a smartphone, but her friends, they're all on TikTok. And that means they're engaging with information constantly um, in a way that, you know, from my generation didn't when they were 12 years old. We still had to go read newspapers and watch the news on TV. We didn't have social media and the kind of content we're seeing now. And speaking to kind of policymakers and people in government and think tank people, I, I get this feeling they think that those young people are eventually going to start reading newspapers and watching TV news again, but that's not <laughs> how, how it's going to work. There needs to be an understanding that the way people consume media is changing. And it's not about consuming media. It's also about interacting with media. There was a survey, and they've done this a few years in a row, where they've asked young people what they want to be when they as in their career. And so many of them are saying they want to be influencers. And, you know, the kind of right-wing media, you know, typically freaks out about that. But that's really about them wanting to communicate with other people. And if we don't teach them how to communicate well with other people, teaching those media literacy skills that help them identify disinformation and the different kind of dynamics that exist online, we can't be surprised when they fall into the same behaviors and the traps that we're seeing already in the older populations. We don't want the next generation of voters to be people who have been raised on conspiracy theories, um, emotionally driven content, the kind of people, you know, like Andrew Tate. We don't want the voters, you know, our voters to be like that because that will be terrible for democracy. So how do we solve that? And I think what we need to do is have a heavily education-led approach, but it isn't just teaching young people about what is disinformation and what isn't disinformation and how to find it, because ultimately that isn't very empowering. And for me, a lot of this comes down to people's sense of a lack of empowerment when it comes to the world around them, be it the politics or media. And this idea of wanting to be an influencer is about wanting to have some form of power and influence. So how do we give them that? We, we, I was very inspired by the work of an organization in the UK called The Student View. So what they've been doing is going into schools in deprived areas of the UK and teaching young people how to use investigative skills to investigate things happening in their own area. So one example they gave is in a city called Bradford. The students they were teaching there were, they have a bad relationship with the police. And one problem they have is there's a lot of high-speed police chases on those streets where they live, and they don't like that. They find it frightening and disturbing. So they were told they could do a freedom of information request and get the information on how many high-speed police chases there were. They had no idea what a freedom of information request was. They were amazed they could ask the police for information and the police had to give it to them. So already for them, that power dynamic was shifting. And they in a way, that was kind of empowered them as citizens as well. And when they got the information back, they discovered it was one of the highest rates of police chases in the UK. And that became a local news story and a national news story. So for them, they were shown that actually by using information, by using the tools that are available to you, but they had to be taught about them, you can actually have an impact. But if they're just doing that by themselves, even if they're doing it through their schools, they still aren't getting that kind of connection to really the networks of power that exist, you know, the media, the government. So what we also need to think about is how local media, national media, policymakers, government engage with that kind of activity. And we also need to look at how that can be carried on from a kind of secondary level into um, university level education. Because I think at university level, you then kind of start taking that to the next step. We've seen, done so many great jobs um, and uh, collaborations with universities teaching the students there how to do investigations that have real impact. If you look at Berkeley School of um, Law and their work with Amnesty International, they've developed a um, team they call the Digital Verification Corps, where they teach 
students open source investigation skills and they use those skills in real investigations that have real impact so they're not only learning skills that are useful for their future careers but they're also learning that they can have an impact on the world in a positive way by engaging positively with information doing investigation and open source information which is a huge and vast resource in many different topic areas is all around us and available for anyone to use so I think if we really, really want to make a difference, we need to look at how do we educate people? How do we get them re-engaged with civil society? How do we empower them to make differences in their lives? Because if we don't do that, we'll just see the same problems we're encountering day by day, repeating in different conflicts, different political situations on a small scale and a big scale, repeated time and time again. And I think it will fundamentally damage our democracy. Much of what you just described speaks to the need to educate people around specific skills, around investigative inquiry. At the same time, it all seems to rest on a foundation. If we arguably live in this post-truth social media world at the moment, and you want to combat that, then it, it demands teaching kids not only critical thinking, but instilling in them this idea that truth matters, that pursuing truth matters, and that's got to be a core of, of, of what we live by. Exactly. And I think in the UK, for example, we've recently had the party get gay scandal. That's the kind of thing that undermines the value of truth in the eyes of the public, because um, it's similar to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, for example, that no matter what you believe, no matter what you do to you know care about the truth, it doesn't matter because politicians will ultimately just do whatever they want. They'll lie to you. They'll manipulate you. Yeah. But again, by empowering people, you give people a chance to fight back against that. I mean, the work that Bellingcat's done, we've exposed the wrongdoing of various governments. I mean, Russia has been a particular um, subject of our work. But these are all things that can be applied to different situations on, on different levels. It can be something that's very local. Like, how do you, you know get engaged with local government to solve the issues that you're facing how do you do that in a connected network way when we live in a connected and networked society and it's something we've done on many different subjects with Bellingcat, but it is something that's so teachable it's accessible to anyone you don't need special tools or kind of really difficult complex ability it's not like it's not rocket science it, it's something that ordinary people can do and you don't have to be a really great kind of investigate able to spend hours and hours on stuff a lot of the work that we do is saying okay what small things can lots of people do together for example with ukraine identifying where videos are filmed that then feeds into a larger process that can feed towards accountability and i think this idea of accountability is very important because if people feel there's no accountability then they're going to be drawn to communities where everyone agrees there's no real accountability so you just have to get mad at each other on the internet and I think, again, the situation in Israel and Gaza is a situation where because people feel there's a lack of real accountability, they just get angry with each other. And this mm. course is really about bashing each other over the heads with whatever information you can find, whether it's true or not. And nothing gets fixed. Nothing gets solved. No one gets a better understanding of what's happening because it's just you know one side versus another rather than actually saying, how do we actually have accountability for what's happening? Yeah, or you have no interest in preserving institutions that do provide value because you don't see any value in them. If there's no accountability, you get a candidate like Donald Trump, who is the break the system candidate, because if you don't 
see accountability in the system, you lose faith in the system and you want a candidate that's going to break it. That's it, exactly. And it, it's, I think it's becoming a real problem. And I think it's partly fueled by the internet, but it's also fueled by, you know, from a political level in particular, a lack of, you know, actually building accountability. There's so, I mean, one thing that has been quite satisfying for me to see that um, I worked on the conflict in Syria for a number of years and seeing accountability coming from that conflict is very, very rare indeed. But among the communities that work around accountability, kind of human rights NGOs, um, the legal community, um, that has actually brought them together and had given them an understanding of the importance of collaboration. And now with the conflict in Ukraine, there's been an awful lot of work by that community to take all the lessons that have been learned and apply it. But I think what's also changed is, you know, I when I started doing this, I was just like a you know, an ordinary person, I had no background in kind of investigation. I taught myself these skills and I built built an audience, but that is now leading to accountability. That has led to work by Bellingcat on the conflict in Ukraine that will be used in international courts because we've been able to kind of demonstrate the value of this kind of work. And because and we're you using sustain work, you, you mentioned 40 employees, uh, you mentioned student view, you mentioned the need for I think a wholesale emphasis and and education on education and critical thinking and investigative skills and the need to pursue truth. I agree with all of that. Government funding for education that's straightforward enough. Now, government funding for media gets into difficulties. We've seen in the Canadian context. We've got a local journalism initiative, which I think is a very valuable thing, but it's government funded. We have a another initiative, which is more of a bailout of legacy media. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of that. And you've got conservatives that will then criticize those initiatives and say, well, the, go the government is paying off the media. And then to get to your previous point that you made around the distrust in certain media, well, it allows certain individuals to write off wholesale certain organizations and, and, the, and the news and, and the facts that are that are sourced from those organizations. So how do you sustainably finance these independent operations that are focused on pursuing truth, providing the skills that we need across young people and old people alike? Uh, but when we want to avoid the perception of bias and, and we want to we want to build trust. It's very difficult because those people who you know, dislike the government will use that, as you said, to basically say, well, you can't trust that source because they've got government money. I mean, we've taken money from the European Union, for example, and in some people's mind, that's enough to dismiss our work. Um, it, it's very difficult when you're dealing with people with that mindset to actually be able to find a sustainable model. But I think sometimes we need to you know, you think about it in terms of funding, how can you pay people to do this work? But a lot of it is actually enhancing the work that's already being done. I mean, there's already universities with departments who can do open source investigation. They just need kind of the funding really to learn how to integrate that into their teaching models. And it's kind of more right. an idea of integrating this into how people work, because ultimately we're dealing with open source information. It's free, it's readily available, it's very valuable for the work of a lot of people. There's the lack of skill and training to actually use that stuff, which is a problem. And what I find as well is that you have people in kind of government or in think tanks and NGOs who like open source information, but they don't have the skills to interpret what is valuable open source information versus low quality stuff that's out there, low quality investigations. And we also need to show those people how to recognize that stuff and also how to spot stuff that hmm, maybe that's not such good investigative work because that does exist. 
And that's why we need like this really holistic approach to this problem. It's not just about saying how many NGOs can we fund to do this work or how many news organizations can we do to it. But what is the impact, for example, of having an educational system where that is part of the education and that we are connecting, you know, say, school-based pop-up newsrooms to local media looking at local issues? Because local media is suffering. And what you effectively have then is a way for local media to, to actually build their investigative community around them. And community is very, very important to this. If you start turning it into just a series of kind of, I would call them failure points, you know, individual organizations or individuals where, you know, if that doesn't work out, then the whole system doesn't work. And that's a problem. But this is what we do all the time with Bellingcat. We we are part of a massive community that collaborates in different ways. And that comes from, you know, includes NGOs, investigative organizations, all the way down to just very active individuals on social media who have particular, you know, a particular set of skills that they're very good at applying. And we have to kind of look at it through that model, which is very complicated. And I think often, it, you know, you explain that to someone who's a, you know, government minister, they might find that quite scary. So we, we have to find a model where basically government ministers aren't scared off by the idea of people working to in, together on these issues um, <laughs> but so yeah that's that's kind of the big challenge that we face at the moment but fortunately i mean in the uk there's more and more interest in this at that level you know i talked to civil servants about this i i think because the discussion around disinformation has been led so much in the past about this idea of you know russia doing stuff to us and that we need lots of right. fact-checking websites a lot of people are still stuck in that mindset but I, I don't think that's a really effective way of approaching this. So I think we need to think in a kind of more complicated and a bigger way, but in a way that we can explain easily to the people who have to make the decisions about it. Well, and there are a number of different avenues of doing it. And I think in your article and, and in this conversation, you've articulated a few. One is, and I think there's good politics to addressing the social media companies themselves sometimes. I don't think the companies have conducted themselves in such a way that they've they they have great popular opinion. And so that, that's good politics. It's certainly good politics to be educating young people and, and ensuring that we have a, a, a next generation that has the skills to live their lives online and to make sure that they bring accountability and pursue truth in, in those lives. And the, the last element, and, and you've emphasized this around restoring and rejuvenating local journalism. I mean, across Canada, certainly, especially in, in smaller communities, local journalism is really suffering. And that's why you see government initiatives like you know, the local journalism initiative to hire to allow smaller organizations to hire people directly and hire journalists. Uh, it's basically just a, a wage subsidy. Uh, better, though, to marry this idea of education with rejuvenating local journalism and harness the power of community, as you put it in your article. Yeah, and... Local journalism should serve local community, but I think we can have a model now where the local community can also serve local journalism. And I think that's yeah. something that should be encouraged. Yeah, I like the way you put that. So what what is, uh, you mentioned a number of different ways that Bellingcat has made a difference. You, you've touched a couple of times on Israel and Gaza. Uh, so much of the work you do is cutting through the fog of war. There is a lot of fog to this war. And I, even on October 7th, I remember that morning scrolling hours through social media in, in horror. And I was very reticent in initially to share anything and to comment on it because I, is this real? Is this true? I, I don't know how to assess the veracity of, of this video. And what is next for you? Let's, let's pick up specifically Israel Gaza. Are you 
working on that in a serious way? You've got a team of your 40 staff that are specifically focused on that conflict? Well, the one problem with Israel and Gaza is that unlike a lot of the work that we do, say, for example, on Syria and Ukraine, the kind of communities that emerge online around those kind of emerge from the start of those conflicts. That's yeah. not the same with Israel and Palestine. You've got people who've been engaged with issues for a long time. People have very strong issues on either side. And yes. unfortunately, what that means is that even if you do really good investigations, those investigations only end up being kind of sticks to beat the other side over the head with. And right. because there's no clear accountability process, it's like, what is the ultimate goal of doing that work if right. there's no clear accountability? Now, we've got the case at the moment in the International Court of Justice with South Africa bringing the case of genocide against Israel. It's unknown which way that's going to go. But for both sides, there needs to be a clear accountability process because if there isn't, the work that anyone does really has no goal apart from fueling the same division and conflict that we've seen. So I think really the first thing that we we need as an international community is like, how do we actually find accountability for this? But there's been so much, many decades of both sides lobbying and sides being picked and this, you know, it's very difficult to be involved with the discourse around it. Even, you know, I, I've done a number of interviews recently with media organizations who've been trying to find people who will speak about the conflict and, you know, these are the issues. And they find it very difficult to find people who want to speak about it because they're so scared of being you know, called anti-Semitic or anti-Palestinian or being attacked online by one side or the other, even if it's making quite reasonable statements. So I, I think it's quite a different situation with the other conflicts we covered because of that campism and that lack of clear accountability processes. Would it be helpful, though, take the the rocket that at, at a moment it was uncertain where the rocket originated when it destroyed uh, a hospital? That's work that you could do to assess the source of, of that rocket, to assess which side actually fired it. I take your point, to what end? Um, in that case, though, you do have actors, including political actors like myself, that are being asked, make a statement because of this. And it's it's hard because of the fog of war to know what happened in that particular instance. Obviously, then, you know, you had U.S. intelligence that was uh, confirming that it didn't come from Israel. Uh, but that's work that you could ostensibly do. Well, one thing we have been doing, uh, because of the amount of training that we've been doing, if you've, you've probably seen that there's a lot of news organizations using open source investigation to investigate these kinds of incidents. Yeah. And a lot of those organizations, I would say probably the vast majority, have been trained by Ballincat to do that kind of work. So yeah. it, it, it's kind of like rather than making Ballincat the kind of single kind of node in a network, you're trying to spread those ideas, those techniques, and those methodologies to as many organizations as possible so they can produce reliable evidence-based work using these various techniques. I think one organization in particular who's done a very good job is the New York Times and their visual investigation team. Um, and they've done particularly excellent work on the um, conflicts in is is between Israel and Gaza. Um, so Kind of from that perspective, I think that a lot of the work that Ballincat is doing is actually producing training and tools for other organizations to use in their own research work, because we are still quite a small organization. And one problem we have as well is that our work on Ukraine, for example, um, is leading towards specific accountability outcomes, but we have a limited number of people who are able to apply that their skills to that work. And if we want to do that with Israel and Palestine, we basically have to stop doing the work we're doing on Ukraine, which then denies accountability for the people in Ukraine. 
And that's another reason why we try and develop these ideas and techniques and spread them to as many organizations as possible. So it doesn't come down just to, you know, Bellingcat as the organization who does this stuff, because I don't think we'll ever be able, ever big enough to investigate every conflict in the world, but we can train enough of other organizations to apply those techniques to do that. And that's that kind of networked effect and the value of spreading these ideas and techniques and being part of networks that comes through again. Well, I, I, I do hope we see realistic accountability mechanisms in uh, the war in Gaza. I, I, I hope you continue to expand. I, I hope you continue to train others. I, I don't know if you have a Canadian presence at all in terms of that training. I'd be interested if you do. And I, I hope that your advocacy around reform and education takes hold in the UK, but, but I, ho I hope it also takes hold in other jurisdictions as well, including in my own. Yeah, I mean, we'll certainly be working towards that in the long term. I'm, I, I really hope it's something that more people recognize as a valuable thing in the future. Well, I appreciate the time and reach out anytime. And if there are Canadian organizations or there's a Canadian presence that you, you'd ever look to establish, I'd be happy. I mean, there are any number of organizations focused on journalism, but also local journalism. I, I, you know, I, I'm very interested in that idea of empowering local journalism through community. So if, if there's any way that I can be a conduit in the Canadian side, let me know. That would be great. And thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. If you want to check out the student view that Elliot Higgins referenced, you can find it at thestudentview.org. Now, I would welcome suggestions for future guests and topics as we restart the Uncommons pod. I'll be joined in the coming weeks by Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow, Housing Minister Sean Fraser, fellow Ontario Liberal Leadership contestant Yasser Nakvi, who I consider a good friend, Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, and I should say we are just getting started. So send your suggestions in, subscribe at beynate.ca or uncommons.ca, and follow me on social media at beynate. Otherwise, until next time.